Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 16. Revelation 16 as we continue to make our way through this book. And we begin the bowl or plague judgments tonight. This is one of those last obvious cycles of seven, the seals, the trumpets, and now the bowls. And uh, we've really been introducing you to this for a couple of weeks. If you've been with us in Revelation, we've talked about these having a lot of exodus imagery because it's, it's an exodus not from Egypt, but from our slavery to sin. And that's what these judgments are really picturing for us along the way. And a few weeks back in chapter 15, we learned that really God is the source of these judgments and God is using them to display his, his justice, his goodness, especially in his answer to prayers to his people. So we'll continue that tonight as we take, take on the first five bold judgments. So we will do chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 16, 1 through 11. Let me just remind you, this is the word of our Lord. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the bloods of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we exalt your great and glorious name, for you deserve all glory, honor, and praise. We give thanks for your word. We're thankful that we can gather together and hear your spirit speak to us through your word. I pray that our hearts would attend to it tonight. And Lord, we pray along with Habakkuk that you would revive this fallen world. That in your wrath, Lord, you would remember mercy. And fathers, we see your wrath and mercy on display tonight. Would it humble us and help us to exalt your great name? Would it lead us to repentance and praise? And would it lead us to preach the gospel, Lord? We pray 
so that more people might trust you and trust in your son to escape the wrath to come. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've noticed that God's judgment uh, is a bit shocking to most people. I'm sure that's an understatement. It's, it's shocking to our world, but it's also shocking to Christians as well. I think it's shocking to our world for a number of reasons. It can be shocking because of the severity of God's judgment. It can be shocking because of the finality of God's judgment. There's no second chance or infinite amount of chances like our world believes. And it can even be shocking because of the extent of God's judgment. You know, it's not just the murderers and adulterers and and evil dictators and those people that are going to be judged. It will be all people. And we can be tempted with this as well as Christians, especially if you're new in the faith or if you're, if you're a child in the faith. If you're new to the faith, you read these words and you think, wow, God is just overreacting all the time, it seems like. And then you grow in your faith, you mature, and you figure out once you sin a little longer how worthy you are of that judgment in many ways. Now, God's people are also shocked by God's judgment at time, but for different reasons, and most commonly, The reason that God's judgment is shocking to God's people is because of the timing of God's judgment. That seems to be the case very often. If you remember Abraham in Genesis 15, I know we haven't quite gotten there yet. We'll get there soon. But in Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that your offspring will have the promised land. You will be given the land of the Amorites and the Amalekites. But first, he says in Genesis 15, 13, your people will be sojourners. In a land that is not theirs, and they will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. You read that and think, well, 400 years, so many generations are going to pass in that time. Why not just judge them now? We're already here in the land. Why take us somewhere else and put us back, Lord? And the Lord answers that question in Genesis fifteen sixteen. The reason he gives is for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Imagine hearing that as Abraham, how shocking that would be. It's almost as if it's, Lord, are we, are we talking about the same Amorites here? The same people that impale their enemies on stakes alive and leave them as examples to their enemies? The people that, that take their children and offer them in fire to their false gods? Are we talking about these same Amorites here? God says, yes, yes, I know. Their sin has not reached its fullness yet. You can imagine how shocking that must have been for Abraham. Or think of the martyrs in Revelation that we've, we've talked about numerous times. In Revelation 6, crying out to the Lord, Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? On those who dwell on the earth. And do you remember what the Lord says? Rest a little longer until the number of fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. What does that mean? Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, God says, no, not yet. Not enough of my people have been martyred yet. Just the shock of that is incredible. Still shocking to me. And I I feel the same shock I'm sure many of you do when I look out into our world. And I see the depravity and the evil that thrives in our world on display in so many ways. And I think, Lord, how long? How long will you endure this? How long before you send your son to finish what he started? 
to free us from Satan's sin and death forever and for good. Well, this passage in Revelation 16 shows us a picture of what it will be when that day comes. But I believe it also gives us a reason, an answer to that question, why does the Lord take so long to judge this world? And the answer simply is this. So God's judgment can clearly display both his justice and his mercy. So we see God's justice, his righteousness, his severity on the one hand, and we see his mercy and graciousness and kindness on the other. We've seen that all the way through Revelation, haven't we? And this passage, again, will put that on display today. So as we cover these first five bowls, I just want to go through really just a few at a time. We'll cover the first bowl in in verses 1 through 2. We'll take the second and the third bowl together because they both deal with turning water into blood. And then the fourth and fifth bowls we'll do together as well with the sun in verses 8 through 11. And as we go through this, please look for the places that put God's justice and mercy on display all the way through. So let's go to verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now you might remember we were introduced to these angels back in chapter 15. These angels go into the temple with these censers full of the saints' prayers. And God hears those prayers and he fills those censers with judgment. And they're called to go and do what? To take those judgments and pour them out on the earth. And so you notice all this plague language. It sounds very much like what happened in Exodus. But the key difference here is this is not just local judgment. It's not just pouring it out in the land of Egypt. This is global judgment, comprehensive, end times judgment throughout the whole world. And for that reason, you'll also see a lot of creation language. Because really what God's doing here is he's in this process of decreation in judgment, making way for the new heavens and the new earth. So let's see the first bowl, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now you probably noticed right away, this already sounds like the plagues in Egypt. In fact, it's the sixth plague that we see in Exodus chapter 9. Moses took soot from the kiln and he threw it in the air and it became boils and sores in the land on both man and beast. Now there's a key difference here though. That's a historical account. Those are literal sores and boils in Exodus. And as we see in Revelation, these pictures we've been giving are symbolic. They're metaphors in different ways. So these sores are not quite the same, just like the mark of the beast, by the way, in the same passage. Now, please, as I say that, I get nervous every time. Because when we hear symbolic, some of us are tempted to think, oh, good. That means they're not real. (laughs) Right? That means they're not really this bad. They're not as bad as Exodus. And that's not what we're talking about here. These are very real judgments. Spiritually, physically, they have a consequence. And they are worse. Just even already in the extent they go to the ends of the earth. But they are worse in so many other ways. So don't, don't go down that road and think just because they're symbolic and metaphorical, they're, they're less severe or less real than, than these were the first time. So what are these sores? What do they symbolize then? 
Well, it's not entirely clear in this passage, but we can make some good uh, guesses to that. The first is we know the plagues in Egypt were physical, physical pain and sores. We also know parallel judgments in the trumpet judgments, especially in Revelation 9, show this to be very psychological and spiritual in nature as well. You might remember this passage in Revelation 9.1. Those who were marked by the beast are tormented like the torment of a scorpion as it stings someone, and they will long to die, but death will flee from them. So there's a physical part of this and a spiritual part of this. What does that all mean? Well, essentially it means that these are sores of idolatry. They are sores that reflect the consequences of sin. In many ways, we see Romans 1.28 being played out here in, in a severe way. We see God giving them up, turning them over to their depraved mind to do what ought not to be done, giving them up to their sin. In a very similar way, we see sometimes in church discipline, right? We pray and we, we talk about 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, delivering them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Now, we know what this looks like, though, don't we? I'm sure many of us have seen it, maybe firsthand in our own lives or people we love. What happens to people when they're given over to things like substance abuse, to drugs and alcohol? We see it destroy, yes, their body for sure, but it also destroys their mind as well, doesn't it? Destroys their, their spirit in a way too. And it really takes a grip on their whole being in that sense. And we see this not just in drugs and alcohol, but in every sin. When you give yourself to lust or greed or hatred, what happens to you? Well, then the people in your life become, become objects. They, the people made in God's image become things to be used for your pleasure or gratification, or they become obstacles, things in the way of what you want. And it can destroy relationship after relationship, marriage, friendship, whatever it might be. The consequences in this world are are terrible. And the saddest reality, I think, in a lot of ways with these sins is you never get satisfied, do you? So much of the consequences is that you can never get enough in this world. It destroys you both physically and spiritually. Now, can you see here the perfect justice of God? This punishment perfectly fits the crime because it's given to those that were marked by the beast. It's almost as if God is saying, you want a mark? You want a mark of the beast? Great. I'll give you a mark. I'll give you this painful and evil sore as it's um, talked about in Deuteronomy. I'm going to mark you out as an object of my wrath for you and the world to see. You want to belong to Satan? Well, let me give you a taste of what he has coming and what anyone else who follow his him has coming you want to give yourself to lifeless idols okay i will take the very life i gave you and you can see here the consequences of their sin idolaters getting exactly what they deserve now this is perfect justice but how is it also merciful If you remember back in Revelation 13, when people received the mark of the beast, why were they getting the mark of the beast in the first place? They were getting the mark out of fear. Because if you didn't have the mark, you couldn't buy or sell, you couldn't provide for your family or yourself. 
There was great fear that you would face the wrath of the beast. You see God's grace here, letting these people know there's greater wrath than the beast. There's something a lot worse than being poor or being marginalized or being slandered by the world. There's something worse than being tormented by the beast and this this world system, and it's the wrath of God to come. It's the wrath of God we've been talking about, the, the wine of the wrath of God. We heard about in Revelation 14, verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and its image, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And the smoke of his torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. You see, God's grace, in God's grace, he made idolatry painful and costly. Why? To give the world a merciful warning. Greater judgment is coming. Greater wrath is to come. So your only hope is to repent now. Well, brothers and sisters, we, we still need this warning, don't we? Because we are so inclined, so tempted to give ourselves to the idols of this world, to the lusts and the lies, all to do what? To fit in. Kids, you know this. When you're tempted to say something you know you're not supposed to, or to withhold things you're not supposed to say, just to fit in and just to be part of the group. Adults, we do the same thing, don't we? We cut corners in our business, we give ourselves to the pleasures that this world offers, and it will cost us now terrible consequences to sins, these sores of idolatry. But if we don't repent, it'll cost us eternally. If we don't wake up to the idolatry that God is graciously revealing in these sores, then we're just storing up wrath for ourselves for the day of wrath to come. The glorious good news is that God has sent a refuge. Jesus Christ has never given in to these lies. He came to live the life in our place. He came to take this plague of judgment, of wrath upon himself and raise from the dead so that we can be forgiven. We can be cleansed of our sin. We can have eternal life in him. So now we plead with each other and with the world that's lost and dying and hurting because of these sores. Listen to the mercy of God. See these sores of idolatry and repent. Repent, as Chad said this morning, before it's too late. That's our only hope, to look to Jesus in faith now. So we see God's justice and mercy in this first bowl. Let's look at the second and third in verse 3. Verse 3 says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now you can just imagine this this picture, can't you? How terrible and disgusting this would be. It's not just that the oceans were turned to blood. The blood of a corpse, this rotting, thickened, coagulated blood. Just picturing that is just disgusting, right? Could you imagine the stench and the dead animals floating in the water? It's just an awful, awful picture. And you might be tempted to think, well, I'm I'm staying away from the ocean then. I don't want any part of this. And then you read verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowls into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So it's not just the ocean. All the water in the world 
turned to blood, now completely useless. Disease and bacteria making this undrinkable. And remember, these are, these are pictures, right? Pictures of this disgusting reality here. Making all these, these animals die and the sea not provide the food that we need. And you see, this is a picture of what happened in Egypt, isn't it? Really, Egypt is pointing forward to this picture in many ways. God turned the entire land of Egypt, all the water, into blood. And the Nile, which was this symbol, this picture for the people of life, where they got drinking water and food, became from the wrath of God a symbol of death. Now I'm sure you can see what this symbolizes in our world. This is symbolizing famine and scarcity and even economic disasters that might bring these things, this kind of suffering to light. And this judgment's happened all the way since the first coming of Christ and will continue to happen and even grow. In many ways, we see this in natural disasters and floods and earthquakes destroying our food and even the way food gets to us. We get a little taste of that with COVID, don't we? But nothing to this extent. We also see it with man-made disasters, with war and greed and foolishness and wastefulness of mankind. I mean, we live in California, the age, the place of eternal drought. But really, it's, it's a man-made drought, isn't it? Dumping a lot of our water into the ocean. And we can look at that and say, oh, it's, it's politics, you know, it's this party's fault or that politician's fault. And a lot of that may be true, or global warming, right? Everybody wants to throw it on something. Those things are true, and they, they can be secondary causes. But really, who brings this drought? Who brings famine? Who brings scarcity? Who brings these things into this world? It's God. It's God in judgment. And so essentially what we see here is this, this is a picture of God removing his gracious provision from this world through these means, through scarcity and famine and so on. Now you can see this is just, can't you? Keep reading, you'll see it even more. Look at verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. You see what this angel is saying? This is a holy angel pouring forth this wrath from God. And as he's pouring it out, he's looking at it going, oh yeah, this is is the God I know. This is the holy God I know who won't let evil slide who won't let evildoers get off with just a slap on the wrist. This is the God who makes sure that the punishment always fits the crime. It's blood for blood. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's exactly, exactly verse 6 at the very end, what they deserve. God is saying, look, you, you shed the blood of my people. You want blood? Okay, I'll give you blood blood to drink and that's all you will have it's perfect almost poetic justice in a way it reminds me of the book of esther and haman if you remember haman building the the gallows for righteous mordecai and then what happens haman is hung himself on those gallows and you see the righteousness and the holiness of god and the justice of god here and look at verse seven and i heard the altar the altar speaking now That's the altar in Revelation 6. That's the saints whose blood was spilt. They're going to respond to this now. What do they say? Yes, 
Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Please notice they didn't say, well, it's about time. Lord, I've been praying for this for years. Finally, I've been waiting forever. They also didn't look on this judgment and say, this is not enough. All right, this, this is nowhere near what they deserve for what they did to me. No, they, they praise God here, almost as if they're, they're shouting amen or giving him a standing ovation, saying, Lord, this is perfect, perfect judgment. This is perfectly just. They deserve this. And we always trusted that you were just, that you would take vengeance one day. Now we see it for ourselves, and we recognize that it's true. You are truly just. That's what these people are saying here. Now, clearly this is justice, but then how is this, this also a merciful judgment? Well, what God is doing here, among many things, he's also showing them, revealing to them who's really in control, who's really sovereign. Now, they should know who's sovereign. Romans 1, again, God is, is get, showed that, revealed that in the world that he's made, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, and they assume that they're the ones in control. And so when their health fails them, they get these sores, they, you can see them, they're running to the ocean to get food, and then that's destroyed. They're running to the rivers, and they try to get food, and that's destroyed. And then later, they're going to run to the nations, the nations that gave them empty promises, and they, they're going to see that's been destroyed as well. You see time and time again, it's almost as if God is saying, fix the earth. Fix the rivers. Can't, can you? You don't want to know why? They're my rivers. This is my earth. I'm in charge and not you. Now, this seems like a very hard lesson to learn, but this is an incredibly merciful lesson because God is not just sovereign. He absolutely is. He's also our sovereign provider. He's the one that gives us food that gives us water to drink. He's the one that gives us food from these rivers, these places he's given us. He's the one that gives us the very breath that we breathe. And he's the one that meets our greatest need in Christ, who sends his son to make atonement for our sins, to reconcile us to God. You see, it's all grace. It's all gift. And we forget that, don't we? So how do we respond to this kind of mercy? Well, first, I think we need to repent. We need to repent often for enjoying the gifts and ignoring the giver. For forgetting that God is the one to supply all of our needs. We come to church and remember that each and every week, but we see that all throughout the week, don't we? We need to give God the glory and honor due his name for providing all of our needs in Christ and in every other way in Christ, in provision in every step. So we've seen God's justice and mercy in the first three bowls. Let's look at the last two for today, just the fourth and the fifth bowls in verse eight. Verse eight, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Again, another gracious gift of God, right? Jesus himself said the Father makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. It gives us heat and warmth. It's, it's the way we set our days and helps crops grow and provides for us so many ways. And now God is taking the sun away from them. In the end of verse 8, and it was allowed, please 
Please notice this language. I know we point it out every time, but you can't miss this. It was allowed. God is allowing this. He's in control. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. A similar kind of torment as the sores. And they were scorched by the fierce heat. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I read this and I think, okay, if, if there's ever a time for them to throw in the towel, this is it. If they're going to give up after their health being destroyed, after their food being destroyed, all the rivers turning to blood, now their sun, the very thing that gives them light and heat is being destroyed right in front of them, this is the time to give up, isn't it? Was that what Pharaoh did? Did Pharaoh repent after the first plague? Second plague? Third plague? Even the last plague, when it looks like he's going to repent, what does he do? He chases him down at the Red Sea, doesn't he? Still hardened to the end of his days when he drowns with his own army in the Red Sea. And how do these idolaters respond? Look at the middle of verse 9. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. It just astounds me here. They're not like saying, oh, it's global warming or whatever it might be. They acknowledge it's God. God's the one that brought these plagues. And look, they did not repent or give him glory. Just as hardened as Pharaoh was. And look at verse 9, or verse 10, excuse me. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. That's the evil kings and kingdoms of this world that have been tormenting the church. We've seen them pictured in many places. Revelation 2, Revelation 13. And how would they respond? Or excuse me, first it says, it's, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now again, this is a, a Exodus plague again, isn't it? This darkness that we see in Egypt. But then probably you're thinking, well, how, how can the sun both scorch people, burn people, but also go dark? It doesn't make sense. You're right, that doesn't make sense, but remember, this is Revelation. We're mixing these metaphors. And this picture of darkness It's not literal darkness in that sense. It's a picture of darkness flooding the land. Evil, spiritual darkness, which is so opposed to Christ and his kingdom. Christ said it himself when he came, John 3, 19. This is the judgment. Light has come into this world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Can't you see that happening You can see it happening still today. People running to the dark, running away from the light so their deeds won't be exposed. Darkness is filling the earth. But it won't always be that way. Because eventually where it's headed is Revelation 21, 23. And the city, this is the new heavens and new earth, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamp. You see the contrast here in this this judgment. This is not the kingdom of Christ. This is the flood of sin and depravity in this world, the flood of darkness into this world. Really, it's a taste of the outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth to come. It's just a taste of it now. Look at the end of verse 10. People nod their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Again, hardened by this. Do you see God's mercy in this, by the way? 
You see God presenting grace upon grace, even in harsh ways to their sight, giving them chances to repent, and they turn from him, hardening their hearts. Now we need to remember that the plagues in Egypt didn't just reveal who was in charge. The plagues also destroyed who they thought was in charge. It was a polemic against their very own idols. The sores were attacked against the Egyptian god in charge of health and peace, this god of, of Isis. The Nile turning to blood was an attack on their fertility god, really the god of the Nile, the, ha- the god of happy. And the darkness, this plague itself, was their, their big god, the sun god, Ra, who Pharaoh was kind of the incarnate version of this. You see what God's doing here? Mercifully crushing all of these idols. He did this in Egypt, crushing every single one, proving that they were false gods. God does this for us as well, doesn't he? We depend on modern medicine. We begin to idolize it and think that we can do whatever we want to fix ourselves. Well, here you go. Here's COVID. We'll turn that upside down real fast. Kids, we we begin to think that friends or family are the only thing that really matters in this world. And we'll find real quick when somebody moves away or some people that in our church, they're, they're saying goodbye to foster kids that are going home or just a family member dies. We can see that as a severe mercy in a way. God reminding us that only he can satisfy. Adults, we can do similar things. We can make our life about jobs or careers and and God can just turn that upside down in a second with an economic downturn, can't he? Or destroying the very nation that we hold up so high and maybe even idolize itself. Our enemies can wipe us out in a second. God's done that for his own people and for countless nations before. You see what God's doing, even in our own world. He's teaching us at every, every step. These people, these idols, can't provide for you. These things can't heal you. They can't protect you like what you need, like how I can. This is incredible, incredible mercy for God to reveal this, even in this severe way. And how do they respond again and again? They harden their hearts. They blaspheme God. Do you see the justice in this now? Over and over again. They're blaspheming God. They're hardening their hearts. We might be tempted to think as we read through this, maybe these people aren't that bad. Maybe they just need another chance. And Revelation shows us over and over and over again that nobody in the end will say, I didn't get enough chances. Nobody will say, God, you weren't merciful enough. It will be painfully obvious in the end that the idolaters have become just like what they worship. Hardened, lifeless, blaspheming objects of wrath. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning for us as well. We are presented with the mercy of God, the pictures of God's mercy in the sacraments, like we talked about, and the gospel continually. And it can be so easy to harden our hearts. To not repent, to neglect the mercy of God, and to play games with God. Don't be like these idolaters. Look to the cross of Christ, the perfect display of both justice and mercy. The fact that we're still breathing is a sign that there's there's still hope. It's not too late. Like Chad said again this morning, the rainbow shows us that there's still time to repent. 
for us and the nations. So we should be eager to run to the Lord for his mercy, to see the justice of God satisfied in Jesus, and to preach that gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Father, thank you for your word and this time. I just pray, Father, that your spirit would work in us, convicting us of sin, leading us to repentance. That your kindness, Lord, would help us to trust you. And even your severe mercies would help lead us to you. And Father, may we desire to preach the gospel so that those that are under your wrath, those that are receiving your justice and feeling the weight of the consequences of their sin now, may see the eternal consequences of their sin and look to Jesus in faith, who has provided everything we need to be reconciled to you. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.